This is an ABC podcast. Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone and welcome this week to a conversation about failure. The first century Gnostics were a loose collection of Christian and Jewish sects who had a unique and rather pessimistic take on creation. Unlike their orthodox co-religionists, the Gnostics believed that the material universe was intrinsically flawed. They believed that there was a supreme being who was good and perfect, but that the creation of the world had been handed over by the supreme being to a subordinate divinity who was malevolent and antagonistic to God and who had deliberately done a really bad job of putting together the earth and the sky and the water and the animals and all the people. Gnosticism considered material existence to be intrinsically flawed, even intrinsically evil. And while the Gnostics were condemned as heretics by the early church, Aspects of Gnosticism have persisted right up to the present day in theology and, as we're going to be hearing, in philosophy. So, why am I telling you about all this? Well, one of the better books I've had the pleasure of reading recently has a Gnostic sort of vibe to it. It's about the way in which failure is woven into the fabric of our lives, from our political and social arrangements right down to our biological makeup. Everything eventually fails, and while that might seem like a gloomy sort of thesis, this book takes it to some surprising and even inspiring conclusions. The title is In Praise of Failure, Four Lessons in Humility, and its author is Kostika Bradatan, Professor of Humanities at Texas Tech University. Failure is essential to what we are because we are from birth, from the very moment when we come into this world, we are imperfect. We may die at any point. It really, it's, it's, it's only thanks to you know technology and modern medicine that we live longer and we survive at you know significantly better rates. But for the longest time in history, people would die at, at birth, like like large numbers. And then anything can hurt us and can destroy us and can kill us. We are so fragile. We are so fragile. We are, we are, we, we survive eventually, uh, with luck, with, uh, you know, care from others, from the family, from society and so on. But fundamentally, we are weak. We are fragile. The world itself is fragile, as you can easily understand from what's going on. It's time perhaps to bring in something else. The, one of the assumptions of the book is Gnosticism. I, I, I was very interested, I am very interested in Gnosticism because it kind of responds to many, many of the problems we have. It's not perhaps the best religion ever. It didn't survive. It was, it had a moment in, in ancient, you know, the ancient world. It, it was a, Spectacular in, in some of the formulations and the mythology it created, but it, it wasn't meant to be. However, the insights, the Gnostic insights have, have stayed with us. And one such insight is the notion that the world is fundamentally precarious. The world is fundamentally a failed world. It's not just a Western thing. Uh, if we think of the very first noble truth of Buddhism, Life is suffering, life is pain, life is un unhappiness. Of course, that's pessimistic, right? That's potentially depressing. However, if we manage to get over that, you know, initial moment, we, we, there is much to be gained. There is much to be learned from, from that because it positions us in a, in a much better place to understand what's going on, to have a better look at ourselves, at, at the world around, 
adopting the opposite view, everything is fine, you know, happy ending and everything is going to be all right. That helps, you know, on the long, short term. That may, you know, facilitates many things in life. But in spiritual terms, I'm not sure that's that's a really um, a promising approach. Yeah, I mean, you could say that this is a profoundly depressing insight, but I guess it carries with it the implication that if we're all precariously balanced on the brink of meaninglessness and, and non-existence, then that makes whatever meaning and existence we have all the more all the more wonderful. Is that where you're taking this idea? All the idea? more precious. Yeah, exactly. So we extract whatever we are, whatever we can achieve, we extract from meaninglessness, from failure, from precariousness. So, And that's a huge accomplishment because it's something we've managed on our own. It's not something that's kind of given to us by society, by our teacher. It's something we, we accomplish on, on our own. So that's, some, that's quite something because that, that kind of truth is lasting. That kind of truth is, is working. So if failure is essential to what it is to be human and it, it, it finds itself, you know, we find it sedimented through all our political arrangements, all our social arrangements, where does that leave philosophy? Because a lot of philosophy deals with the business of getting to the essence of things and in that ambition – as you point out in your book, philosophy also reaches for success. You know, it's this idea that we can come to some sort of perfect understanding of the world if we can just get our terminology right, just get our rational faculties really sharp. Presumably, you see that as a doomed prospect. So, so what do you think philosophy is supposed to be about? First of all, I'm not sure I'm in a position to say what philosophy should be about. That would be a a prescriptive job I'm incapable of, and I'm, you know, very reluctant to, to going there. It's often a matter of sensibility, of, of, of personal understanding of philosophy. Somebody like, like myself would see philosophy as, as being about certain things. Somebody else, some another, you know, scholar of philosophy would, would have a different view, would conceptualize philosophy in a different way. One thing that philosophers should be really careful about is not to go with the flow. I mean, the mainstream, the flow of common notions, the flow of, of the given meanings of words and concepts of, of, what philosophers should do, should practice is suspicion. If you see something, don't believe it. Don't believe it. There may be more there. You should take a really a skeptical view. And the whole society right now, in, in particular in the West, is kind of pre-programmed, pre-designed to celebrate success and accomplishments and so on. And there is a large dose of optimism, you know, with which we are born into this world and we we have to live off it and we have to project it farther and so on. But that has reasons that have to do with the way in which the whole society has been built and the, the whole economy, for example. Because if it's fundamental for, for a capitalist economy like ours to rely on this kind of optimism. The notion that my life will be better tomorrow. Uh, things will go better. There's nothing wrong that can, can happen to me. We always have to hope for better. We have to see the, you know, the full half of the, of the glass and so on. If we embrace that mindset, we are more productive workers. We borrow money. We spend more. 
And so if you expand that, if you extrapolate that on a larger scale, you have a very productive, very successful capitalist society. But that's, again, that's a matter, that's a one particular type of society. It's not necessarily the best. It's, it's just what happens to be uh, uh, the case right now. Uh, in a different time, in a different historical context, you would have a different society uh, with different values, with different um, priorities, and so on. So for what philosophers should do, to go back to your to your question, is to to take a step back and not believe everything, to try to dismantle, to try to practice a a healthy dose of skepticism. But you quote Emmanuel Levinas as saying that the best thing about philosophy is that it fails. That's an interesting comment. What what do you think Levinas is getting at there? And what are you doing with Levinas' idea yourself? That was a... I'm not sure exactly, I don't remember exactly the, the larger context, uh, but it's a beautiful quote. It kind of it inspired me, perhaps not in the way in which it was meant to, to, to function. It inspired me to, to, to launch this project. Philosophy should fail or should embrace failure, should place failure at its core. Because again, it's a matter of positioning. If I accept that I'm a failed project, I tend to be humble. I tend to position myself at a very low level, you know, the the lowest possible. And from there, you know, humanity comes from earth, from ground, from from dust. Once you've reached that level, the zero level of existence, you, you gain a much better view. It's paradoxical. Typically, we, we see, you know, uh, the view from above as the best view, but it's it's actually the same thing turned upside down. Uh, once you are placed, you know, at the ground level, you do see really well, and that's for philosophically, that's quite something. That's a perspective philosophers should consider adopting because that's really the best angle, the best perspective you you can have. Because otherwise, what happens? You have hubris. You have arrogance, you have pride, you have a number of, you know, human, all to human ingredients that interfere with your thinking, that interfere with how you perceive the world. And you end up not perceiving the world as such, the things as such, you perceive much of your own projections, projections of power, projections of dominance, projection of, of, of you know, superiority and so on. And that's really my point. We need to really get rid of whatever is selfish, whatever is proud, whatever is arrogant in our composition. So that we can gain this clear, clear view, this as much as we can, as much as we can. It's nothing radically new here. It's really, it's all traditions, all spiritual traditions aspire or promise or encourage that kind of thing. But in philosophy nowadays, particularly in Western philosophy, it's not very common. There is a lot of hubris because philosophers have gained the sense of power, the sense of, of superiority over ordinary people over other disciplines, over, you know, other types of literature, other types of approach to the world. And that's that's a shame. And that's not at all profitable for, for philosophy. So what about that great elevation of reason that we see working in and through the Enlightenment philosophical tradition and, and on into modernity? Certainly, I mean, it's certainly at the centre of, of, of a certain kind of philosophy, you might say at the centre of analytic philosophy. D- do you see it as being a, a misstep in a way and something that works against that that need to, as, as you say, be more humble and for philosophy to place failure at its centre? 
Does that go against reason? No, that's actually a very interesting. You are opening a very interesting question here because it's before being or not a misstep, it, the whole thing may be a problem of misperception because there is so much in the Enlightenment project that's not rational, that's irrational. There is in Kant, for example, a, a major, you know, Enlightenment thinker, he explicitly made room for faith. You would have, from that particular point of view, you have more rationalism throughout the Middle Ages in scholastic philosophy, you know, in Christian scholastic philosophy, than you're doing in Kant, because those many philosophers had this ambition to prove God's existence rationally. Whereas Kant said, well, you cannot go there. You need to make room for faith. That's a different realm. It's a different, it's a different register. The human reason is not meant to operate in that particular space, which is well, it's it's a it's a very nice distinction to make and to have, but it's not exactly a, a triumph of reason. On the contrary, it's a postulation or a recognition of the limits of, of reason. You have then in Rousseau another major figure of enlightenment. You have sentiment and intuition and so on and inside all kinds of irrational impulses that come from within and are not exactly under the control of reason. So a lot of, of what we mean today by the enlightenment, the rationalistic project, may in fact be a matter of mislabeling, mispackaging. But it's true that uh, mispackaging or not, we do have a, a time period, uh, historical paradigm defined by this rationalism. The very mispackaging, the very misperception that happened later in the way in which, you know, later generations perceived enlightenment is itself telling, right? Because people in the 19th century, 20th century wanted to see the enlightenment as, as this over rationalistic projects on which their own philosophy was, was based. That's how their own Legitimacy was built on, on the Enlightenment project, seen again as that particularly uh, rationalistic project. Again, it's a hubris of sorts because it doesn't admit, doesn't recognize so much that's important in us, and yet it's not rational. In philosophy, particularly, we do have, you mentioned analytical philosophy, like, you know, the mainstream definition of, of what philosophy is today. There's so much in philosophy. That's not reason. There is much, if you read a, a good text of philosophy, there is much that is, for example, about emotion, it's expressivity. A good philosopher, even a, a good analytical philosopher, would employ metaphors and images and try to evoke emotion and so, and so on. Even the driest, the driest of philosophical texts would have some kind of, you know, hidden aesthetics. Uh, an argument needs to have its own beauty. An argument has a plot, which is kind of, is not exactly rational because it's meant to be aesthetically pleasing. Then you have in, 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 in philosophy, kind of in, in mixed with, with purely logical stuff, you have political concerns. You have, you know, a certain political sensitivity that comes there. You have religion. It's disguised. Those philosophers would not admit that they are doing, you know, religion where they are voicing political concerns. And yet, if you look closely, if you go deeper, you will discover those things. So my point is philosophy is hybrid. Philosophy is kind of, is a very mixed, it's, it's very much like 
like us as human beings, we are some kind of mixture of reason and unreason, emotion and, and sentiment and, 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 and dreams and aspirations. We, we, we are not rational machines. Thank goodness. We are crazy creatures uh, where so much is involved, uh, you know, from the highest to the lowest and from, again, emotions and reasoning and imagination and dreaming and aspirations. It's a, so what philosophy has to do, I guess, is to account, to account for this complexity. It can be frustratingly difficult. And that's why I would suspect philosophers want to stay away because it's not satisfying. They, they prefer, they, especially today's mainstream philosopher, they prefer clear cut distinction. They prefer very well defined, uh, concepts and so on. But the price they, they have to pay is, is, is significant, I, I would say, because they sacrifice, they end up sacrificing so much that's there, but they prefer not to see. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone on RN and the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Kostika Bradatan. He's Professor of Humanities at Texas Tech University, and his recent book is In Praise of Failure, Four Lessons in Humility. Details on The Philosopher's Zone website. I'd like to talk about Emil Cioran, the Romanian-born philosopher whose life spanned much of the 20th century. He was born in 1911, died in 1995. And Cioran was a great connoisseur of failure. Tell me first about who he was. We, we can get onto his ideas in a minute, but the biography is a, a wonderful litany of catastrophe in and of itself. What were some of the, the highlights of failure in, in Cioran's life? He was not a particularly promising failure. The failure would come a bit later in his life. He promised to be a successful young man. He he was smart. He was um, the son of a priest, of an Orthodox priest, uh, went to study from his village, uh, Reshinari, in central Romania and Transylvania. He attended a German-speaking uh, uh, high school. And that placed him in a really good position to move on to study philosophy in a, in a very professional way. He moved on to Bucharest, where he enrolled in the philosophy department. And that's where he discovers failure, the failure of others, and, uh, and perhaps more importantly, his own. Uh, not just his own failures, but his own aspirations to be to be a failure. From then on, he would have this attraction towards losers and failures and people who do nothing, who waste their lives. And just what they offer is the spectacle of their own waste, of their own burning. So he would study philosophy. He finished college, right? He finished uh, with an with an undergrad degree and moved to Germany to do a postgraduate degree in philosophy, which was exactly 1933 when Hitler came to power. And what he does in Germany, instead of studying German philosophy as he had planned, right, he discovers Hitler's ideas and he starts praising Hitler and, and the Nazis and so on in a half-joking way. But eventually, so it's kind of, it's not easy to say exactly where he's serious and where he's not. But still, the overall impression was that he was he was a supporter. Uh, came back, came back to Romania <laughs> to 
to do nothing much. Um, he was a high school teacher of philosophy for one year. He lasted one year. It was a, a complete failure. He he couldn't perform. He couldn't do a, a proper job. And, you know, he, probably no sooner did he return that then he started applying for other uh, fellowships abroad. He wanted to get away from, from Romania. So he... But eventually he chose France, which uh, to him looked like the land, the promised land of failure. You could go to Paris and do nothing. And somehow you manage to leave and you just, you perform your own failure publicly, visibly to great social effect. And then he became a loser uh, in a very enlightened uh, sense, uh, in a very peculiar personal way. He managed to survive somehow. Uh, he started in the f- late 40s. He started writing books, his own, you know, we do have now uh, his signature uh, style. He had written before in, in Romanian a number of a number of books, actually, some I think some five books, and but they were you know locally famous. He was a, a fantastic writer, but in Romania, nothing was had been translated into into French. So he kind of he reinvented himself in a new language. He learned French from scratch. He knew German very well from an early age, but not French. But soon enough, he became a com- very competent writer. He became the Turan we know. He became the spectacular, the, the great stylist, the great master of French language. So you have from the late 40s on, early 50s, uh, book after book after book, where he he presents his ideas of dark visions and (laughs) the end of everything and uh, the collapse of civilization. But again, it's it's about doom, but in such a a fascinating and such such a seducing manner. Well, how would you sketch out those main ideas? I mean, it's, it's interesting what you're describing very clearly here is a man who, who doesn't struggle against failure. He, he embraces it. He sort of savors it like a connoisseur of failure. Presumably, this, this closely informs his philosophical work. How would you describe the work? His work is based in Gnosticism, as we as we talked before, and he, in that respect, he was a, a huge influence in my own thinking about failure. Um, sooner or later, he becomes interested in Gnosticism. Maybe not from the very beginning. He he was first interested in Bergson and I think in Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Those were the thinkers with which he became familiar when in college and then when he moved to Germany. But gradually, he became more and more uh, interested in Gnosticism, for example. And but also, he was widely read. He knew quite a lot about Buddhism, for example, and ancient philosophy and modern philosophy and Western and Eastern and so on. He was a, a very learned. You wouldn't say because it's he, his books. He, he doesn't show off his learning, his uh, his sources. He's a, he he kind of he's a very personal writer, very without much you know bibliographical baggage. But in fact, he was a profoundly learned uh, scholar of philosophy. Uh, he was rooted in, in Gnosticism and this dualistic vision, you know, uh, which again goes back to those medieval heresies, and he, he claimed to be one of their followers. And basically, you do have the notion throughout. You know, it's it's the, of course different different sects and different movements would have slightly different versions, but fundamentally it's the notion of a, of a world as a failed project, of the world created by an imperfect, incompetent, who could not do better, any better. The world is in such a, is in such a poor state because its creator is in such a poor state. Its creator is a good for nothing. 
It's such an interesting approach and you write wonderfully in the book about how it's a very Romanian approach and you yourself, uh, Romanian born like Chioran, one thing I would love to talk about here, we don't really have the time and I will just refer listeners to your book for a really, really fascinating discussion about all the ways in which Romania constitutes a, a nation of failure, a nation that has failure in its in its bones, its DNA, its history. It's, it's a wonderful discussion. I'm going to pass over all that just because of lack of time and ask you about America because you live and work in America and find yourself in a culture that famously worships success. So given everything we've been talking about, given this, this wonderful book that you've written, I want to talk just to, to finish up with about that disjunction, if you like, between your work and the place in which you find yourself. And, and you know, how, how has the American environment shaped the way that you think about failure? It offered me a, a challenge, a huge challenge. And I realized there is, of course, there is this, this propensity to success and, and doing well and doing better and better. But at the same time, there is a huge anxiety behind that facade. There is an anxiety a failure, status anxiety, and, and the obsession, the, the fear that you may one day, you know, lose class and lose cost and, and become a marginal and a poor and, and you will have no friends and so on. That's why actually, that's why people have been attracted. To my surprise, that's something I discovered after I finished the book, after the book was published. People are attracted in the States, in this country, to the book itself because it responds to that deep, you know, obscure anxiety they have been feeling from time to time. The book is based on an essay published 10 years ago in the New York Times. It was called In Praise of Failure, in which I kind of sketched the the main ideas, but of course the book would, would become something else. I, I didn't know at the time what, I didn't even know that that would be a book. It was just, I was playing with, a, this, basically I was toying with the notion of, 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 of praising failure, which looked to me very, uh, cheeky. I mean, we, 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 let's me, let me be paradoxical. Let me, let, let me do this unusual, uh, paradoxical thing to praise something that's unpraiseable. Even then, I realized that there is a strong interest among uh, the American readers uh, in this kind of stuff. And, and then I, I went on, I, I produced the book, I, I finished it. And eventually, now after the book was published, I discovered this huge interest. Because people, even if they are really concerned about success, they want to succeed, they want you know, fame and money and prosperity and so on. There is always this, this, this dark, this dark thing, this dark fear that failure may be just around the corner. And there is also an attraction towards failure. If only, if only to know who your enemy is, if only to know what you have to stay away from. And of course, you, you see some of that in the reactions people uh, have toward the book. Some of them, some of the readers just hate it. How can you praise failure? You have this, this, this violent, aggressive almost reaction to, to the book because it's disturbing for them. Uh, it's something that's kind of, uh, it triggers, it, it triggers something deeper, obs again, obscure, something that they are not fully conscious of, but they are, you know, uh, secretly afraid of. 
Kostika Bradatan. He's Professor of Humanities at Texas Tech University. He's also an Honorary Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of Queensland, and his book is In Praise of Failure, Four Lessons in Humility. Check the Philosopher's Zone website for more details, and of course you can listen to the Philosopher's Zone and all of our past episodes any old time on the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. <laughs>